So tonight, I want to talk a bit about this paradox, this dilemma of thought. This uh, arises once in a while in interviews, topic of thinking. Occasionally, it seems to go across and be a little bit of a seeming problem in people's meditation. So I just thought I'd offer some thoughts <laughs> about it. So. Thought's really interesting, right? Because if you just look at a thought, it's nothing. It's absolutely nothing. It's completely ephemeral. It's empty. It's just, you know, the floor is brown, you know? It's just nothing. I'm a stupid jerk. It's just nothing. It's just, you know, emptiness going through. And yet, <laughs> right? And yet, it's so powerful. I mean, our whole world, really, our whole sense of ourselves, the whole world is created by thought. Look at the power of propaganda, for example. You know, that's nothing but thought, right? The whole, I was seeing a, a BB, a public t TV special on Goebbels, you know, the propaganda minister in the beginning of the Third Reich up, up, and, up through the Nazi time. Amazing. You know, just how to manipulate what thoughts to put out and just repeat over and over and preying on emotions, but it's all the work of thought. Quite amazing. When thought isn't understood properly, that's when we get so seduced. You know, we're seduced by the content, obviously completely wrapped up in the content, like, don't like, upset, whatever. We're seduced by the strong mental states, emotions that come along with the thought, often seduced by not even seeing them, you know, and getting even more involved in the content, or thinking because there's this strong emotion, that means whatever the thought's saying really is true and needs to be paid attention to. Although generally I find that's a reverse proportion. And or in, in meditation, this isn't so much if people who don't meditate, we get totally seduced by the idea, the thought, that thoughts shouldn't be happening. That thoughts bad, thoughts a distraction, thoughts a sign that your practice is no good, you're getting nowhere. I could, I'd be a millionaire if I had, you know, a dollar for every time someone came in and said, I'm thinking more, there's more thoughts, you know, my practice was going good, now I have more thoughts. That's, you know, the end of the world or whatever. So. It's a, a paradox, a dilemma, right? It's from Dingo Kensi Rinpoche. I, I love the way he puts things. I, both two paragraphs describing both sides of the paradox. What we normally call the mind is the deluded mind, a turbulent vortex of thoughts whipped up by attachment, anger, and ignorance. This mind, <clears throat> unlike enlightened awareness, is always being carried away by one delusion after another. Thoughts of hatred or attachment suddenly arise without warning. Did you ever notice that? Triggered off by such circumstances as an unexpected meeting with an enemy or a friend. Triggered off by any circumstance, right? 
And unless they are immediately noticed, met with mindfulness, they quickly take root and proliferate. Yet, however strong these thoughts may seem, they are just thoughts and will eventually dissolve back into emptiness. Have you noticed that too? Once you recognize the intrinsic nature of the mind, these thoughts that seem to appear and disappear all the time can no longer fool you. Just as clouds form, last for a while, and then dissolve back into the empty sky, so deluded thoughts arise, remain for a while, and then vanish in the voidness of mind. In reality, nothing at all has happened. (laughs) That's what I love. If we can really see that nothing at all has happened, What a relief. End of the story. Okay. Well, I'm going to blab on, but that's really all we need to know. Seriously. (laughs) But I have to entertain you. (laughs) Okay, so just talking some different ways of how we get so caught up in these thoughts. Because by the time now... Well, some of you have been here on Silent Retreat for a long time. Some of you have just come in the last day or two, but you've all done plenty of meditation before. So you, I'm, I'm sure you must all have the experience of thought that just comes and goes, right, with no punch at all, like the floor is brown. You know, that really you can get that sense. You may not see it beginning and end, but you really get the sense it comes from nowhere, dissolves back into nothing, and really nothing at all has happened. So what's the difference between that and the occasional other thought that somehow seems to have Velcro and a lot of other stuff going along with it? So I'm going to talk a little bit about perception and papancha, which is the process where we get so caught up. And then hopefully a little bit about that not all thoughts are at all unwholesome either. So really starting where thoughts begin, you could say, with the way the Buddha spoke about it, is from the point of perception, right? And you all know, you all know what perception is, correct? That's the way the Buddha talked about it. It's a very specific <clears throat> mental factor that arises in each moment of sense contact, right? So seeing, smelling, hearing, tasting, physical sensation, mental activity, thought or emotion, the six sense experiences. So whenever there's contact, sound, there's an ear that works, there's consciousness. When those three come together, that's contact, a moment of contact. And in that moment, according to the Buddha, there's naturally perception, which is simply the recognition factor, the discernment of what is arising in that moment. It could just be hearing. That's already perception, knowing that's hearing. Or it might just be a bird song. And you don't even have to say the word, but there's just that recognition, that knowing, right? That's what's considered perception. So obviously, perception is based on memory, on our past experience, you know, on what we know really. It could also be a perception of hearing, I don't know what that is. You know, that's also a perception. 
So this is arising in every moment. And, and you can see how the perception, the Buddha says, what, what one perceives, one thinks about. So often perception is what kind of places us in a context, even though we don't have the conscious thoughts, a perception generally comes together with as if thoughts are almost not quite form thoughts, the associations of context and place and meaning. So for example, um, when you look at, at, looked at the watch at your clock tonight and you saw the minute hand at 25 past 7, okay, that's a whole lot of perceptions already. Watch, minute hand, 25 past 7. That, that's a huge amount of perceptions. And we put it together, it means something. Not only that, you know it means you're here in this forest refuge, it's Monday night, it's time to go to the Dharma talk. Yet that's a huge amount of thoughts, a huge amount of perception, right? All of that. Useful, extremely useful. We're not saying perception's a bad thing here. And the thoughts are also useful. Give us a context. Not a problem. Okay. Now, often perception, well, almost always perception, that moment of perception, hearing birdsong, for example, in that moment of consciousness, the, the consciousness is the knowing and the, the, the perception is the recognition, in that moment of consciousness, it comes together with whatever mental factors, whatever mental states happen to be in consciousness at that moment. And those mental factors can once in a while uh, disguise, distort, or, or give, actually make the perception inaccurate. So, for example... It's like delusion, which would like put a cloud over things. A classic example is walking in the forest and you see a snake and all the reactions as if it were a snake. But when you get closer, you just see it's a rope. So the, the delusion, the not recognizing, not really recognizing accurately, leads to a whole set of thoughts, emotions, assumptions based on inaccurate perception, right? So that's an ignorance clouding the perception but equally desire or anger or fear can color the perception, which leads to an inaccurate perception. And from this, there can be a jumping off place. If we don't recognize that, and there's not a mindful you know, awareness with wisdom, then the thoughts, the reactions, the associations are all based on that inaccurate perception. I remember once I was in the hospital and... It was in the early morning, they come and get you out of bed at 5 a.m. to weigh you, and God knows why. And so I, I was, you know, I was out of it on some kind of, they'd given me some painkillers or something, but someone told me later there's something called ICU psychosis, where you just, you, you go a little like, your perceptions are a little wacky, your mind's a little crazy. Mine was anyway. So this poor nurse, a nice lady, the next day I realized is a nice lady, she came, and I literally, I remember, I saw her as demonic, you know, as really like, that's what I literally saw. And I say the poor lady because that seeing led to, you know, assumptions led to how I responded to her. Plus, I didn't want to get out of bed at 5 a.m., you know, to be weighed. And, and just like that, you know. Next time I saw her, I could see through it. A lot of the time... 
we don't know that's happening, you know. So when we have this perception, so often, I mean, we don't even recognize perception for one thing often. It just is happening every moment. Never mind, is it accurate or not, or questioning it, or even having an openness. So what tends to happen is there's the perception, assuming it's accurate, all the assumptions, whatever, that goes along with it. You know, we don't even know. And then it says, if the, the mind, the freshness of attention snaps shut. We know what it is, we know, and we just stop really meeting the experience freshly, moment to moment. I mean, that's what happens with the breath, right? Enough already with the breath. Or there's a pain that, that's been, I've had this pain ever since I began practice 20 years ago. I know this pain. Don't, I don't need to look at it, you know? I know what it is. Or have you ever had, you know how probably the people who've been here a while, you may find that without at all meaning to, as soon as someone who has also been here, or not, they don't even have to have been here, walks into your field of vision, there's contact, seeing, perception, there's an immediate sense of all the, all the baggage of assumptions and associations that your mind has created with that person. Do you have any sense of what I'm talking about here? And I've noticed for myself on retreat, I love it when I see how wrong the perception is. Um, for example, first, like on the, in, in, over at the retreat center, when it's a bigger dining room, and I'm sitting at the table, not looking up, not looking around. And you know, someone comes and sits at the table. You don't look. I don't turn and look. But I know who it is, right? I know. I just can feel it. I know. Got everybody scoped out. And so they're sitting there, and I can watch my mind go through all the reactions and all the associations that this mind has created in regards to that person. Pleasant, unpleasant, they're eating sloppy, I knew they were, that's how they are. And then I see that person who's still sitting here walk past way in the distance. It's like, oh. It's like such a, such a moment of, of startling, of the mind just letting go. I really had no clue. Let's start fresh, you know? It's really interesting. I read this article. I really like this story. about. Perce- it's really about perception that we make, we assume, and then we think we know what's what, and we don't even meet the world freshly. This is what mindfulness is countering, the whole point of mindfulness, about uh, sort of an experiment in Washington, D.C. that the Washington Post newspaper arranged with this uh, one of the world-famous concert violinists named Joshua Bell. He's, he's extremely well-known, and they, they, he, they did an experiment with him where they had him at the morning rush hour on a Monday morning get dressed up just in like a baseball cap and jeans and take his, as they say, $3.5 million Stradivarius violin in his case and go position himself at a really crowded subway stop at rush hour on Monday morning. And it was at a a place where the people coming out of the tram or the subway had to go up this long escalator, and he was positioned at the top playing his violin. So they had to hear him coming up the escalator. And he just looked like anyone, opened his case for money. So he had this incredible violin, and he was playing incredibly difficult beautiful music. He wasn't just playing some, you know, anything anyone could play. What he was playing was, they said one of the play, things he played was um, 
Bakshakon, which they say is, is very, very difficult to play. You know, one of the most difficult. I mean, 14 minutes long, and he's just playing it incredibly. So anyone who knows music would recognize it. But they were saying that the, the, the experiment was really to see if, because it was beautiful, is if people could, would just recognize beauty, you know, without it being set up. This is an expensive, you know, concert, so I appreciate it. And they, of course, videoed it all. So it was fascinating because hardly anyone stopped to pay attention. It was six minutes before the first person stopped to even listen. And, they, and so they could question everybody after, you know, because they had it on the videotape. So this guy who stopped was coming up, and he said he was on his way to work, you know, and, and he wasn't particularly a musician, but coming up the escalator, he was just struck by, he suddenly said, I just felt really peaceful. I felt really happy. So they see he looks at his watch, and he saw he had three extra minutes. So he went and he waited against the wall and listened for his three requisite minutes. Gave the guy some money. So the first time he ever gave a street musician money and went on. And it was like that. That was like the max that anyone really stayed. Mostly no one at all stopped. And they said, uh, you know, a few people would look for a little while, give some money, and run on. And they said there were no, um, there was no way to, uh, no ethnic or demographic pattern to distinguish the people who stayed for a minute to watch or who gave money. But there was one absolutely thing. Every single time a child walked past, he or she tried to stop and watch. And every single time the parent was in a hurry and scooted the child away. Really interesting. Interesting. And also interesting was they were talking to Joshua Bell later, and it was interesting for him. Because he said, you know, it's a very strange feeling that people were actually uh, ignoring me. And he was laughing at himself. He said, at a music hall, I'll get upset if someone coughs or if someone's cell phone goes off. But here my expectations quickly diminished. <laughs> I started to appreciate any acknowledgement, even a slight glance up. I was oddly grateful when someone threw in a dollar instead of change. So he got $32 for his 45 minutes. <laughs> and 1,070 people hurried by. Interesting, huh? Then they have a quotation from Billy Collins, the poet, who once laughingly observed that, all ba- his opinion, all babies are born with a knowledge of poetry because the lub-dub of the mother's heart is in iambic meter. Then Collins said, life slowly starts to choke the poetry out of us. Maybe it's true with music, too. (laughs) So I don't know about that, but you get the sense of street musician, know-it-all, I'm in a hurry. We don't meet life freshly. We don't meet our experience freshly. And perception can play a part in this, you know, the perception. So that's one place that we get caught up and lost we think we know. We don't even know we think we know. We don't even know all the associations that are coming, and the mind snaps shut. I notice this with political figures a lot. Certain political figures will come on the radio or the TV. I, I know more than I want to know about them, and I, I'm not even open to hearing one word. You know, I just have to hear the tone of voice. It's over. It's off. You know, and I remember this is way back now with Nixon. 
and something came on, they were saying something good about him, and I saw my mind so clear, I don't want to know anything good about this man, you know. <laughs> Let's not be open here. <laughs> this is how it is, and I don't want anything to mess up my, you know, my assumptions. Dingo Kensi again. When sense organs encounter an object, so like the ear encountering sound, the only part the object itself plays is to initiate the process of perception in your consciousness. From then on, as your mind reacts to the object, influenced by all your accumulated habits and past experiences, the whole process is entirely subjective. When your mind is full of anger, the world seems to be a hell realm. When your mind is peaceful, free from any clinging or fixation, you experience everything as primordially pure. And Ajahn Chah says it, of course, in his very direct, earthy way. That he was holding up a vase. or so He goes, look at this vase. You think it's nice, or you think it's ugly. The vase itself is completely indifferent. It's we who are making ourselves insane. <laughs> right? Can you relate? That's how it works. So starting with perception. When it's fueled, that perception comes together with, fueled by unwholesome states of heart and mind, that's when we get what the Buddha calls papancha. And this is how he describes it. What one perceives, one thinks about. What one thinks about, one complicates. Complicates with associations, notions, memories, ideas, etc. This is the manufacture, the creation of papancha. And these notions then assail and overwhelm a person. In the commentaries, it says, it's the tendency of the imagination to break loose and run riot. I think these guys, these old guys were very dour, but it's like that, isn't it? And so when they talk about Papancha, we can actually explore it. We don't have to be afraid of it, but we can really use our mindfulness, our cultivation of moment-to-moment awareness to turn it onto the process of perception, of thought, of these thoughts feeding on themselves, taking off, running riot. And we can actually observe the whole process. And in the observing, as we well know, we've stepped out of believing it, seeing, oh, it's just cause and effect. And again, no matter how intense or how out there the thoughts, the papancha, the craziness gets, the more we watch it, at some point, no matter what it is, it dissolves back again into the nothing it came from. And then you know those moments when you've been just completely crazed for the last hour, and then it's just gone. Nothing happened. What was that all about? Nothing. It's really gone. Let it be gone. So in in the classic, in the text, in the commentary, they talk about three, and these will be familiar, states of mind, three mental factors that really most readily fuel 
this papancha, this habit of the mind to just go so far so fast. And we don't notice them, and we get lost in the content. So I just want to enunciate them a little. You know them all, but I just want to talk about them in this context. So the classic ones are craving, yeah, ditti or view, and particularly self-view, sakaya ditti. And the third one is mana or conceit, which is most observed in the process of comparing. Vimalo, who is a German man who was a monk for many years, uh, a Pali scholar and teacher, he added a fourth, which I find really helpful, which is fear, which really, that fuels some major papancha when we don't recognize it. So remember, it's not that this stuff is a problem when we see it. It's just the next arising mental object of awareness. We don't have to fix it. When we see what's happening, we don't have to get so caught in believing it. When we don't see what's happening, we're seduced, we're gone. So craving and fear, I'll kind of put them together. Obviously, we understand. I mean, we know what craving is, right? You've had the experience once in a while. Fear, recognizable. Just to, to begin to or continue to notice how first, when craving, when wanting is in the mind, it colors the perception. You know the phrase that Tibetans use that craving puts feathers on the object. It makes the object more attractive, more desirable, you know, whatever it is. So I remember, this is weird, but I, one time I was on retreat and I kept having this, this, this thought, a mental image thought, but that's just a thought. This picture would come up of this street corner in Bangkok. Not at all a nice street corner. A street corner of very busy streets, with all these little you know, sidewalk shops that sold plumbing fixtures and little parts. But it would come up together with craving, God knows why. And it would come up, there was craving in the mind, and I'd go, oh, Bangkok. Oh, Bang Lampoo. And even then I'd go, what? <laughs> but, but it kept happening like that. And the moments when I didn't notice it, I'd go off into a whole fantasy about Bangkok. I want to go to Bang Lampoo. There's nothing charming about Bang Lampoo. It's just crowds and fighting the crowds. And it was so, it was so humorous. I could see how the process happened. It doesn't have to make sense. It's more a problem when it does make sense. So the whole, the whole, um, phenomenon of getting a crush on somebody, on or off retreat. It doesn't just happen on retreat, unfortunately. But when the mind has got craving associated with a person, aren't they? They're beautiful. They're handsome. They walk so sweetly. The way they dress is so lovely. How they eat, how, you know, everything. And when the crush is gone, the person hasn't changed that much. You look at them and go, what was that all? You know? Thank God, you know, we were in silence and I didn't go anywhere with it. But it's, the person didn't change. You know, maybe they changed their socks, but not a whole lot else changed. It's just what's going on in the mind. Okay, so it distorts the perception. But pancha is then the series of thoughts that with craving often move into what I call papancha of action. We act on it, Right. So sitting here, one of the reasons we restrict how it's going on is so there's less you can act on. But 
how often do you, if something comes up in the mind, you really think that would be nice? I need some long underwear. The fall is coming. Next thing you know, you're on the computer. But no, you can't do this. You can't go on the computer. But next thing you know, you're on the computer surfing, and all of a sudden, all these things are being delivered, FedEx, all these long underwear and gloves and boots and what, you know. And when it comes, by that time, you're like, huh? You know, got a little carried away by craving, by acting. That's papancha of craving. Or you're just doing your walking meditation and the thought of tea comes up, colored with craving. Next thing you know, you finish the tea. You don't even know how you got from the walking meditation to the dining room. You don't remember making tea. You don't even like it. It's gone, but <laughs> craving, that's papancha of craving, right? Pretty obvious when we're looking at it this way. But look back at how much it runs our life. It's actually shocking how much papancha, the thoughts driven by the perceptions based on craving leading to action, run our life. And how, well, we know how much suffering craving is, how difficult it can be to just be present and mindful with wanting, 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 not go into the thoughts. The thoughts can come, let them come. We don't hate the thoughts, but we don't have to be seduced by them. It's just the papancha fueled by craving. And just because the craving's really strong doesn't make the thoughts more true. So just, just noticing that is really interesting. <laughs> There's a, a little story I like from Andrea Levine, Stephen Levine's wife just talking about this and how unreliable the mind is in this way, but it's so persuasive. She says, you know, you're sitting there eating a piece of chocolate cake and there's more and the mind says, oh, have another piece of cake. It's so good. You know, you'll be so happy. It's just what you need to top off the day. Just have another piece of chocolate cake. You know, on and on the papancha until finally we just eat the cake to shut up the mind. And then you eat it and the mind goes... I wouldn't have done that if I were you. <laughs> yep. So that's papancha driven by craving. Not very reliable, but certainly we can recognize it. The second one is papancha that's driven by ditti. Ditti's the word for view in Pali. And um, Mostly we've talked Sakaya Ditti, identity view, but I just want to, to mention how any series of thoughts can coagulate, can solidify into a view, perception, oh, this is like this, so we, we believe the perception. And then the series of thoughts, that means, and that when I mean it hardens into a view, it's sort of that place where our, our clear seeing, our um, beginner's mind has snapped shut. We're not seeing freshly. We're seeing through the view. And the way the Buddha de- describes view is the mind that says, although it never says it so clearly, as this alone is true, everything else is false. Right? So for example, when I was thinking about Nixon, the view was really, this is a horrible man and there can't possibly be anything good about him. And the mind doesn't want to see. That's the view. right? Well, we do that a lot really a lot. So just to give examples based on, in meditation, that's one of the big areas of uh, suffering I see 
with people on meditation retreats, and even, even some people here, I've seen it happen, where the mind constructs a view of what proper or good meditation is. We may not even know we're doing it, you know, but it's really a privilege being on the, the you know, meeting with you all side of things because I can see how people can come in with, with totally opposite views, both completely convinced that this is right and that's not what's happening, and so my meditation's a mess, you know. So it can be, should just be with breath and no thoughts. Can be, there should be really access to deep emotions. Can be, if there's deep emotions, it means I'm not concentrated enough, it's not going right. You know, can be, I should be mindful every single moment. Can be, whatever happens is fine, I'm relaxed as long as there's no tension. Whatever. A view is not a problem when we recognize it, it's just another thought. Oh, it should be like this. That's right, meditation. That's just another thought. Unrecognized, as I said, snaps our awareness shut. There's not an openness. There's not an, a willingness to just be with the unknown. And it actually is like has a selective perception in the mind, like that thing with Nixon. I'll only let in the perceptions that fit the view. Well, of course, we're not doing that consciously so much. So this is a real example I use often. I was teaching a retreat many years ago California with another teacher, James, and even then I had to sit in a chair. There's about 50 people at this retreat and quite a few pretty new people. So about the fifth or sixth day in, I was having an interview with a woman that was her first long retreat. She was in agony with sitting on the floor, sitting cross-legged. I mean, I mean, we all have pain, but sometimes it's like so much agony, one's just totally fighting it, and it's basically that's stupid, you know, it's a waste of time. And when she saw me, she said the last five days, all she'd been doing is lost in aversion and pain and sense of total failure sitting on the floor. And even though, of course, in the beginning, we said like we always say, a floor, a bench, a chair, it doesn't matter. So she said, fifth day, fifth day, she's sitting there thinking, I, I can't do this. The whole meditation's about sitting like this, and I can't do it. I'm useless. And she looked up and said, oh, Carol's sitting on a chair. Five days. You know, and I'm, we're like at every sitting when we're doing a retreat like that. It's not like I just came in in the evening. It's amazing the power of selective perception the fit of view. And the view is often, I can't, it should be like this, and I can't do it. The view is often a suffering view, a view of ourself. So that leads into a sense of Sakaya Ditti is uh, identity or personality view. So she was doing that, for example, she was just having the view, proper meditation, the only way to meditate is to sit cross-legged. That's just a view. The Sakaya Ditti, the personality view, was I can't do it. I'm a failure. Right? That could just be a thought. I can't do it. I'm a failure. Is a thought just like the floor is brown, the sky is blue, today is Monday. It doesn't have to pack any punch. We don't have to be seduced by it. It's not like we have to get rid of that thought. We just see it. So, oh, yeah, rising from conditions and going away. But when we really believe it, 
holding to it, and the papancha continues on and on and on from it, that's when it's really Sakaya Ditti, this personality view, this holding on to some aspect of nama rupa, of some of the, one of the six sense contacts, a thought, an emotion, a sight, a sound, a feeling in the body, thinking of it as near mine, and kind of carrying it around with us. Like one of my teachers used to say, it's like carrying a dead corpse around with you all the time. You know the, this famous Zen story, very famous of two monks, an older monk and a young one, and they're walking and they get to a river that's really, and they have to walk across, and there's a beautiful young woman who can't get across. And so the old monk picks her up, carries her across, puts her down, and they walk on. And nothing's said. And after quite a while, a couple of hours, the young monk just goes, I can't stand it anymore. How could you do that? You know it's against your precepts to touch that beautiful young woman, and you completely did. And he was you know, really upset. And the old monk said, I put her down at the river. You've still been carrying it these last two hours. That's Sakaya Ditti, right? So we take any thought, any mood, anything that comes, carry it with us through the day, thinking, actually, there's no way you can really carry it all the time, but we think we're carrying it with us. You say, is this always here? This feeling of worthlessness, this sense of not being good enough, this angry personality I have, you know, whatever, or this incredible, wonderful being that I am. Very rarely, but once in a while, that's the one people carry. Even when I'm not noticing it, I know it's there under the surface, right? Are you familiar with that feeling? Even I'm just sitting, being with seeing and hearing, seeing the beauty of the leaves, there's a feeling of happiness. It's just that in that moment, I'm not noticing the sense of total worthlessness and aversion, but it's there because that's who I am. That's me. That's Sakaya Ditti. And I don't think I have to elaborate too much on how much papancha can go from that. How, this is something I love to see, actually. I, I really love playing with it on retreat. You can do it off retreat, too, of course. To notice how quickly almost any sense contact can move into Sakaya Ditti, into the it's all about me. So, for example, it doesn't have to when the mind's clear, but how quick with Ditti, with view and craving, Papancha just ripples out. So like walking outside today, I was just walking. The, be- the leaves are beautiful, right? I love this feeling of fall. So I'm already there. I love this feeling of fall. And immediately, um, it's like there's the leaf, how much I love it. It's so beautiful, the smell in the air, the memory of so many past falls, a feeling of kind of sadness that comes in the fall. Oh, me, I'm experiencing that feeling of sadness. It reminds me of all these other falls, another year gone, blah, da, blah, da, blah. You know, it could be pleasant or not. It doesn't matter, but I've gone in one second from just smelling, just smelling, to the whole story of Carol's life. You know, and poignant and sad, and yeah, this and that. And, oh, that's a pretty, you know, neutral. I mean, it wasn't really upsetting, but it could be. It could be really craving, really upsetting. We could get, if it's a little more juicy, caught in it for a really 
long time. How often is it that someone, like someone will tell me they have an unpleasant sound, get lost in what does that mean? Why are they doing that? How can they be like that? What happened? It reminds me of when I was, my father did this. I remember one retreat where some guy was, he was, he was being driven insane. Okay, I'm exaggerating a little, right? He wasn't really being driven insane. By someone's loud breathing near him in the three-month retreat. And as a friend of mine, we'd talk and talk. It took him weeks to realize. I mean, he was just spinning out with thinking and that person and my life. It took him weeks to realize that the memory that breathing sound triggered was his father. And some way his father sounded when he was angry with him. And it was just completely spinning him out of control. Papancha. Often we don't see what associations are coming with the perception. And the papancha just takes off. So that's the kayaditi. And it's mostly, it's Joseph's line. Joseph loves to say, we're just making it all up. You know? There's just sense contact. It's pleasant or unpleasant. There's a perception. And then the imagination just breaks loose and runs riot. We're just making it up. As Nisargadatta says, the world appears to you so overwhelmingly real because you think about it all the time. Cease thinking about it, and it will dissolve into thin mist. And we can notice that over and over. You might also notice you don't really want it to dissolve into thin mist. And that's another thing that keeps us spinning in the Sakaya Ditti and the papancha of it. The third, the third aspect, the third thing that fuels papancha is mana, conceit, conceit of self is how it's described. But what it really, the best way to explore it is through this habit of the mind of comparing. Have you noticed your mind doing that at all in these days here? And how much thought that leads to and what a charge that often has. So a lot of comparing is with others, right? That, that first, that sense of you can't bear to have someone walk by without looking to see who it is. It's a well-known phenomenon, totally bizarre, but it's very well-known. And then as soon as we've looked, if we look, immediately the mind goes into that comparing. You know, they're this, they're that, they're better, they're worse, we're the same, whatever. How people are sitting, how people are eating, how people are moving. And it's, it's all dukkha, it's all suffering. But it leads to a huge amount of papancha and thinking. They're walking so slow, how come? I wonder what kind of practice they're doing. I remember when I was doing practice and I was walking so slow, and now I'm not. I wonder which is better. I wonder if I should be slowing down and noting. I remember when I did that, but no, I really get into striving. Maybe I'll just be free and easy. I'll just walk outside and free and easy. And all of this is going on in one step, you know, gone, comparing. We could just be with seeing, us seeing, perception, pleasant, unpleasant, that's all. doesn't have to go into all those worlds of creation. We compare with our own past experience. And this is a huge source of comparing. 
just noticed that. Previously, other retreats, last sitting, yesterday, it was like this. Just notice that comparing. Notice the way when we're not aware of it, it leads into a whole series, a whole train of thoughts, construction of self, suffering. We get really seduced by it. Oh, that's mana. That's conceit. It's going to keep coming. Of all the ten fetters, so to speak, in, in the Theravada view of different fetters drop away at different levels of awakening, mana is the last one to go. So don't get all upset at yourself that you see it happening. But notice it. And then it doesn't have to go into all the papancha. So we compare with each other, with our past experience, with a view, very much a view and idea of what practice should be, or how I should be, or I should always be a compassionate person and I'm not, whatever. We compare with that. And that whole sense of not good enough can get really strong, or I'm great, either one. Again, you're back to Sakaya Ditti. Working with mana, with comparing, I find it to be a great dining room practice in a retreat setting like this. It's the one place. That's a good practice in the hall, too, but hopefully most people are sitting with their eyes closed and not checking everybody out. But in the dining room, you know, you have to have your eyes open. You have to go through the food line, hopefully know what you're doing, notice other people. So just be aware when this comparing kicks in. Notice how soon you notice it. Are you way down the road? Has the papancha been running for five minutes? Great, notice it then. Oh, that's comparing. Let it dissolve into thin mist. Maybe you notice it right away. Some people have told me, and I have the same experience, I can just be walking by myself, no one around, completely calm, serene, present. I just have to have one person come into sight, not even in the dining room, close, but way in the distance. And immediately there's a tightness, a comparing, a sense of clenching, just noticing. Noticing in the dining room with comparing comes, like make a game of it, not that we're afraid of it, but just noticing how there can be comparing and it doesn't have to go to papancha. There can be comparing and it does go to papancha. Notice how that works, what the effect is. Where's the suffering? Where's the freedom? So it's not that we have to be afraid of these things, but to cultivate the interest, the willingness to simply explore thought as an object arising, together with different mental factors, the perception, and to really see the difference when it's just dissolving into thin mist, when it's really coming with a punch and we're getting caught. Not to judge ourselves, but to get interested to see how it works. Really quite fascinating. This is from from, uh, Ashen Utejaniya, one of my teachers, talking about thinking. It does not matter whether thinking stops or not. It's more important that you understand whether your thoughts are skillful or unskillful, appropriate or inappropriate, necessary or unnecessary. Mostly they're unnecessary. This is why it's essential to learn to watch thinking without getting involved. 
When a thought keeps growing, no matter how much effort you put into trying to simply observe it, you're probably somehow involved in the thought. When this happens, when thinking becomes so powerful, so incessant, you can no longer observe it, that's when you stop looking at the thoughts and watch the underlying feelings or the bodily sensations instead. And I would say from my experience, I don't know if I could, I want to say always, but it's close to always. Whenever thoughts come with a punch and they're really pulling and it's more than just one thought that you're really getting caught in, there's an underlying feeling, an underlying mental factor. And so we don't hate the thought, we just see the thought, but enlarge the awareness to notice, to be with that underlying energy of, you know, like the papancha energies I was talking about, fear, wanting, just being with it and seeing how that fuels thought. And when we're watching all of that, thought is no problem. It's just another arising experience, just like sound, just like sensation, literally. And when we no longer need to get rid of it or fight with it or hate it or take it personally, it really starts to lose its power. This is from, um, this is actually from Nisargadatta. Maharaj. Oh, no, no, it's not. This is by, uh, from Ramana Maharshi. He's talking about watching the mind with full attention. Whenever the mind wanders, just notice it. Notice how thoughts connect with each other. And watch how this ghost called mind catches hold of all your thoughts and says, this is my thought. Watch the ways of the mind without identifying with them in any way. When you give your mind your full, detached attention, you begin to understand, to see the futility of all these mental activities. Watch the mind wandering here and there, seeking out useless or unnecessary things or ideas, which will ultimately only create misery for itself. (laughs) Watching the mind gives us a knowledge of its inner processes. It gives us an incentive It actually just allows for the wisdom to arise that we get more and more detached from our thoughts. Ultimately, if we notice steadily and long enough, it allows for the wisdom to arise to remain as consciousness, unaffected by transient thoughts. So it's not that we're trying to get rid of thoughts, simply to understand simply to see the cause and effect. And the more we see it, you can't help. Wisdom arises in the awareness. You can't help but notice the energy, the unnecessary complications, the unnecessary suffering. And it really does happen by itself. So I'll give you an example from my own life of long ago when I was so grateful for this wisdom of mindfulness, like almost 20 years ago. And I was coming up, coming down with some chronic disease that no one knew what it was. And it had a lot of affected my movements. It was quite painful in my joints. And, and at the time when no one, before anyone knew what it was, I just went this to someone the other day, I remember so clearly, one day I was leaning down to wash the bathtub or something, and, and it was really difficult to bend down. It hurt to move. And my mind started like, uh, you know, it, it hurt. 
poor me. And then that jumping into the future from fear, the papancha of fear. What's this going to be like? If I can't move, I won't be able to take walks. I'll never be in a relationship. I can't even clean the bathtub. How am I going to function? And I just saw the mind starting off like that. And without aversion, without anything, I saw that happening. And the wisdom just said, that's completely unknown. There's no point in going there. It's completely useless. And that wasn't said with aversion. That was just totally wisdom-like, boom. And it didn't go there. And from then on, really, it, it never went there. I mean, it would start off one or two thoughts. Immediately, awareness would notice it. And just the energy of it would completely drop out. That wasn't striving. That wasn't willpower. That's wisdom. And it comes from simply just watching what thoughts do and seeing that total emptiness of them. The most horrific thought in the world, it dissolves just like the most beautiful one. And the emotions underneath them, we just need to see that. Emotions are emotions, but they're not thoughts. We don't have to get so caught in believing them. The Buddha said that the end of papancha is the end of conflict. We can notice that just in a moment. Like that example I just gave, you know. Oh, what am I going to do? The punch is gone. The conflict is gone. What's happening now is just what's happening now. In very simple ways. Someone gave me the example today of noticing how mind is in a really calm, equanimous space. And say, for example, a pain would come up in her foot, and it would just be that sensation. The mind just doesn't create anything around it. No papancha. No reaction, no creation of Sakaya Ditti identity view. It's nothing, it's just a sensation coming and going. In that moment, that's the end of conflict. So I just want to end with this from Bingo Kensi again. Because I like when he's on the you know really challenging this is how it is aspect. But it's possible for us to notice that. All phenomena of samsara and nirvana arise like a rainbow. And like a rainbow, they are empty of tangible existence. Once you recognize the true nature of reality, which is empty and at the same time appears as the phenomenal world, your mind ceases to be under the power of delusion. If you know how to leave your thoughts free to dissolve by themselves as they arise... They will cross your mind as a bird crosses the sky without leaving any trace. Let's just sit quietly for a moment. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.